about Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves, your host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Jake Villock, and he'll be answering your questions on smallmouth bass top to bottom. The show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Jake a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use that Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Just fill in your name and email address in the form on the right side of our web pages, and we'll let you know when the next live show will be. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. You can also find it on any of the podcast distribution sites like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website or any of the podcast platforms at your convenience and listen to the recording at any time. If you're out and about on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, we'd sure appreciate it if you'd share our podcast. And when you do, use the hashtag AskAboutFlyFishing and hashtag FlyFishing. In fact, if you have a moment, do it right now. We've got a couple links on our homepage to make it easy for you. And please share the knowledge that's happening here tonight. The content of this broadcast is copyrighted as the property of the Knowledge Group Think, doing business as Ask About Fly Fishing. When we return, we'll be talking with Jake Vilwak about smallmouth bass top to bottom. The Colorado River at Lee's Ferry is called by some of the world's largest spring creek. It's a massive clear-running tailwater fishery that runs 15.5 miles from the base of the Glen Canyon Dam to the upper reaches of the Grand Canyon. At times, it gives the impression of being not one or two, but a series of parallel Spring Creek-like waterways. The fishing is great, and the scenery is gorgeous. These ferry anglers provide professional guide service to this outstanding rainbow trout fishery, as well as food and lodging at Cliff Dwellers Restaurant and Lodge. See for yourself why Lee's Ferry is on every fly fisher's must-do list. Visit leesferryanglers.com or call them at 800 962 9755. That's com, or call them at 800-962-9755. Before we introduce Jake, I'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight. For our drawing tonight, we'll be giving away one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. So you have two chances to win tonight in our drawing. Now, if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and look for the link under Jake's section that says register for our free drawing. Click on that link and fill out the form, and we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. We'll also be giving away a copy of Jake's latest book, Smallmouth Bass Flies, Top to Bottom, courtesy of Stackpole Books. Here's how you can win. You must be the first person to answer the question we ask at the end of the show. The question is going to be about something that Jake and I talk about during the show, and you just submit your answer along with your name and location in that text box on our homepage, the same place that you can ask questions during the show. Take notes, listen closely, type fast, and if you're the first person to get the correct answer in, you'll win Jake's book, Smallmouth Bass Lies, Top to Bottom. Our guest tonight is Jake Vilwak. Jake has been an industry professional for over 14 years. Growing up in a commercial fishing family, on the eastern shore of Maryland, fishing has been part of his life from day one. So it should come as no surprise that he has chosen a career in the fishing industry. 
After graduating from High Point University with a business degree, Jake worked as a deckhand and fly fishing guide in Sitka, Alaska. He spent the winters dog sledding in both Fairbanks, Alaska and Deep Creek, Maryland. Moving back to the East Coast in 2009, Jake worked for TCO Fly Shop at Reading, Pennsylvania and Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania locations. Jake has helped open and manage their newest location in Boiling Springs, Pennsylvania, after eight years as a full-time retail manager with TCO. Jake decided to start his own business. And Relentless Fly Fishing, which will serve as a contract guide service for three TCO fly shop locations. Jake guides in Pennsylvania and New York for trout, smallmouth, and steelhead. He has a true passion for warm water. It's hard to find him anywhere but a smallmouth river from early spring to late fall. When he is not rowing a boat, he is most likely prowling around a local spring creek chasing picky wild fish. In addition to guiding, Jake is the author of Smallmouth Bass Flies Top to Bottom. He's also a Fulling Mills Signature Tire, a blog writer, contributed to Fly Fisherman Magazine and Eastern Fly Fishing Magazine, and serves on various pro staffs, leading industry companies such as Hatch Reels, Scientific Anglers, Sims Fishing, Clackercraft Drift Boats, Scott Fly Rods, and Regal Vice. Jake, welcome to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Thanks. It's great to be here. Oh, great to have you. Were you on the water today? No, I was hiding from the tropical storm Fred that just decimated all of our rivers in the area. So, oh, no. Uh, oh. Yeah. Needless to say, I probably will not be on the water for at least another week. So. Oh, I didn't know it hit you guys that hard. I wasn't... Uh... Like the news has all been focused on Afghanistan, <laughs> not, not other things that are happening, it seems like. Well, sorry to hear that. So it stirred the water up a bit, I guess, huh? Yeah, we uh, the one river that we fish in the summertime is uh, was flowing yesterday at about 900 CFS, and it's forecasted to go up to 20,000 CFS by Friday. Oh, uh, my gosh. We'll, uh, we'll have some water for sure, so... Hopefully it'll be good, though. We'll get a little bit of a reset. You know, when the water gets under 1,000, our bass can get pretty picky. If you give them a little bit of a slug of water, they'll typically <laughs> calm down a little bit. Clean out their pipes, huh? Yeah. And, That's uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> get them focused on what they really should be doing, which is uh, hitting the fly. Yeah. Well, um, exactly. good. I hope you survive that well and uh, nothing tragic happens there. It sounds like it's gone over the banks, though, huh, at that Right. Yeah, I mean it's uh, the river's pretty relatively big, but mm -hmm. the main river that runs through Pennsylvania, that's kind of our most well-known uh, smallmouth fishery, the Susquehanna, that's going to hit about 150,000 CFS, halfway to flood stage. So it's not as bad as we saw it back in 2018 when it hit 302,000. But um, oh my gosh, it'll definitely be a little bit of water. Yeah, um, yeah, that's all right. And those are both smallmouth rivers? Yep, Susquehanna is kind of the most well-known one, and then one of the tributaries to that, the Juniata River, that's another one that we fish a lot. And um, okay. they're both phenomenal fisheries, and, you know, it's got some big bass in them, and pretty healthy population in general. You know, the biodiversity is pretty amazing when you look at the charts to see young of the year all the way up to those upper teenage fish, and you know, so it's not definitely not a trophy fishery in the sense of you're going to catch nothing but big fish, but right. it's pretty healthy, which is always good to see in today's era of issues with water quality and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. And all wild fish? 
They are, yep. yep. The uh, Susquehanna drainage system does not have native smallmouth bass, but they are wild. The eastern, or excuse me, the western side of the state, the Ohio River drainage, so Allegheny and all of the creeks that feed into those systems are native to Pennsylvania. And I believe, don't quote me on this, but I believe reading some information is that they basically took Ohio River drainage fish and brought them over to the Susquehanna a hundred some years ago, and mm-hmm. now we have a wild populations. It's pretty, yeah, pretty they, awesome. They liked it, huh? <laughs> they sure. did. Yeah, they, yeah, they flourished. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, good, good. Well, lots to talk about. And congratulations on your first book, Smallmouth Bass Flies Top to Bottom. Quite the accomplishment. And folks, I encourage you to go out and take a look at this, pick up a copy. He's got some excellent fly patterns in there and how-tos and tying some of the patterns and how to fish them as well. And we're going to dig into at least part of that tonight as much as we can. Yeah, and, I'm uh, ready. You're ready. Okay, well, we got some questions coming in. And I kind of tried to organize them. we got some general questions about smallmouth, some specific questions about equipment and flies, lot on flies, and then we talk at the end about some strategies, both for still water and, and rivers and streams and so forth. So we got a lot to cover. So first up, DB in San Diego asked, uh, do smallmouth bass prefer living in pods, or are they a solitary type of fish? That's a great question, and I think it's kind of a combination. They do pod up, especially in the wintertime, so you'll start to see bass around October start to school up into similar sizes to spend the winter times in their wintering holes or their deep water where there's not a lot of current and whatnot. But during the summertime, you do get a lot of solitary fish. You can find single fish cruising the shallows or following a carp down down while it's feeding. It's picking up a lot of its excess and stuff like that. And to keep it kind of short, I would say both, depending on the season, you'll definitely see them spread out, especially the bigger fish. The bigger fish will tend to kind of go on their own. And that's not to say that you won't find fish kind of potted up, but typically you're going to see them if you've got a pretty long, deep run and there's some structure in there. You know, you'll see fish in that same hole, but each one will be on a separate piece of structure. You won't see five or six fish sitting next to each other at least in the larger size, the smaller fish, they can sometimes run in packs all the time, safety in numbers type of thing. But those bigger predatory fish definitely go solo for a while during the season. In that respect, do they hold similarly to trout? And, and They do. You know, okay. They do. You know, and that's one of the things in the book that we kind of broke the book down into the different feeding columns to kind of bridge the gap between smallmouth and trout and show the similarities between the two. And you find them on current seams. You find them at the drop-off of a hole where you've got some skinny water and get a little dip. You'll see fish heads right at the top of that. And, you know, they also hold in riffles and different runs the same way trout do. Typically, if you're fishing for trout, at the head of a longer run, you're going to find your bigger fish, and towards the tail out of that run, you're going to find your smaller fish. And they tend to have that same similarity, but they are very structure-oriented. They're very flow-oriented. One of the things, especially in the summertime when the water gets low and clear, is not only are you looking for underwater structure, but you're looking for overhead structures. 
overhanging trees and long shaded banks and things like that because aerial predation can be a problem with eagles and ospreys and things like that. They're very structure-oriented for sure, and you will see them in a lot of the same water that you'll find a trout, especially in Ripley water. I mean, anywhere you would find a big fish in Ripley water, you're going to find a bass. Um, Okay. Same exact type of situation. DB also asked what type of structures do they prefer. Maybe you can kind of separate that from still water to moving water. I mean, one of the similarities between still water now, I will preface that I don't do a lot of still water for for smallmouth. I have done a lot for for largemouth. But I will say that one thing I know for sure, especially from doing a tiny bit of lake fishing for bass, is that rocks are like the number one thing that you'll find fish on, whether it's moving water or not moving water. You're going to find them boulders in the middle of the river. You're going to find a fish either in front of or behind it in that sense. If you're going to find rock ledges, kind of ambush points anywhere, you'll see some kind of unsuspecting bait fish swimming around, and a bass can sit there and just kind of quickly pick them off. But you'll also find them underwater logs. They love wood. A lot of different bait kind of migrates to that type of structure. A bass is kind of find refuge in kind of an all-you-can-eat buffet, if you will, in that sense. They do like quick drops, so you'll see like a high bank with rock that kind of falls into the water. When you get a little bit of current break in those rocks, you'll see a lot of bass in there, especially when the water's moving a little bit quicker. They'll kind of push over to the bank and hide into that stuff. And then another one that's kind of interesting that you is very seasonal is grass. You know, you get clumps of grass in the river. Sometimes it can get really choked up depending on the flows, but those bass love to sit underneath of grass and you'll see all the bait fish swimming in that area as well but you could have a completely dead flat three four hundred yard section of water where there's nothing but peat gravel and little rocks then you find random clumps of grass and you put a popper or something over there and 70 percent of the time you're going to get some sort of small mouth out of there whether it's a six inch or a 20 inch and then the other big structure you see is just kind of depth and depth is relative talk to some guys and they're like you only find bass in you know deeper water like these really long runs it's like well if you've got a system that's in the summertime there's flats that are maybe only a foot deep and you have an 18 inch little pocket in there you could find a fish in there so to them that is deeper than anywhere else and so you'll find fish kind of in those drops a lot and you'll also anywhere you find bait that's one thing i do talk about in the book as well as the migration of bait and how it relates to where you'll find smallmouth at different times of the year. That was a pretty long-winded answer. Yeah, that's, that's very good. I would, I yeah. would say wood, grass, depth, and rocks. Those are kind of the four main ones that we're always looking for when we're floating down the river. Well, you know, and you, you just said something that I think is true with all fish. It's where's the food, right? And yep. when we're talking about bait fish, whether you're on the flats in Belize or on a stream in Pennsylvania, where's the bait? <laughs> and that's where the exactly. fish are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I remember we were up, you know, you see this in the ocean quite a bit, but I'd never seen it really in on a lake. And this was up in Lake Kississippi up in Canada, and it's like a 250,000-acre lake. But it was late in the day, and a storm was rolling in, and these pike had pushed these bait fish up into a kind of a lagoon area. And the bait mm-hmm. fish was just coming out of there like popcorn. 
as, yep. the, as the pike were crashing at the bait. So it was like, yep, <laughs> they're where the big fish are. <laughs> and they're exactly. pushing them and herding them up. And it was pretty exciting just to watch that with the, all the activity. But, yeah, that's very cool. That How does – it just comes to mind, too. You know, you said you fish for largemouth in lakes and so forth. How do, do you think largemouth differ from smallmouth in their activity, how they feed? Is there something that smallmouth do differently than largemouth? I think they, we could have an entire interview on that, on that <laughs> okay. exact subject itself. But, yeah, I think one of the biggest differences that I see with largemouth and smallmouth, and sorry for everybody listening that loves largemouth, my dad is also a largemouth guy. Sorry, Dad. But I feel like largemouth are pretty dumb, and they will eat just about anything that you put in front of them. And, and I think smallmouth definitely are a lot wearier, and they're a lot more efficient. And so, you know, they get called lazy sometimes because if you don't put the flag in the right exact spot, smallmouth won't eat it. Or if you don't present it at the perfect speed, they will follow it, but they won't come over and grab it, like, for instance, a pike even, or a suicidal fish in some ways. And I think that smallmouth definitely think way more than largemouth do. You know, mm. and I've done a lot of largemouth fishing. I, I have had some days of largemouth fishing where conditions just weren't great, but typically when the conditions are good, it's a, pretty much a slam dunk when it comes to actually fishing for them. But I do know that it can be pretty finicky. But I think smallmouth are definitely a lot more weary than largemouth. Okay. I think largemouth are pretty opportunistic, where smallmouth are opportunistic, but they also have a scholar way about them sometimes where they're kind of that you can see them almost like thinking and solving a problem in their head while they're following your fly sometimes. <laughs> and I don't see that much hesitation with large mouth. Yeah, yeah. If it fits in the mouth, it's going in, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Phil McCartney wrote in and asked, are there common threads that Jake sees present in fishing for smallmouth in his home waters that hold true when he fishes? waters he's not familiar with or for the other types of fish? I think so. I do a lot of saltwater fishing growing up in the Chesapeake. You know, not many people know this, but my first fish on a fly rod was a striper. I have salt in my blood, and I love snook and redfish and tarpon. And I think I hear a lot, and I talk a lot about it with some of my friends, and we talk about that the snook is the smallmouth of the salt, or a tarpon is the more aerial version of smallmouth in some ways. You know, the smaller ones, obviously the big ones are different class. But I think there's a lot of similarities between any predator, not whether it's a trout, whether it's a tarpon, or whether it's a smallmouth. You go at a fish and you try to figure out, okay, how do I, what do I have to do to convince that fish that this is food? You go into every species of fish that way, and I think that's pretty common. But just a sense of a fish that feeds primarily on bait fish. The, the speed of your fly, I think, is common in a lot of that. I will say that one thing that that is not common when it comes to streamer fishing for bass or other saltwater fish versus trout is that you can fish a streamer too slow for trout a lot of times. When I go streamer fishing with some of my buddies, trout fishing, they'll be like, dude, you're not fishing for smallmouth. You're fishing for trout. Speed it up a little bit. But I've noticed that a lot with especially structure fishing for snook and stuff like that, that pause, getting that bait fish to kind of hang there 
front of their face for a second, let them think about it, and then pull it away from them. And it's like that pull away, I feel like, is what really gets a lot of those fish moving. Yeah. You know, and stripers are very similar to bass to the smallmouth as well, and that's where you put that fly in front of them. And you can move, you know, those flies pretty fast because when a striper's on it, like, it doesn't want it to stop. But I think one of the most common things is that pause. I think, you know, if you've got a fish that's weary and kind of thinking about it, like, you know, playing cat and mouse is a big thing that I think that a lot of predatory fish need. And I've even seen that with musky fishing and, you know, pickier pike, which, you know, you don't see those very often. But, you know, <laughs> that hang in front of them, I think, is really, really important because it's kind of like, okay, it's there. I can probably eat it. I see that with smallmouth a lot where, like, especially in the system, like, the rivers that we fish, where there's so much food that no matter how many fish are in there, there's they can always just wait for the next thing. So if it's not perfect, they're like, yeah, I might wait for it. And then you give that a quick strip and then another pause and they shoot up behind it and look at it and they're kind of try to cut it off. And that yeah. kind of cat and mouse game, I think, is common for that, for just about any predatory fish. Yeah, yeah. I, I think there could be, well, hmm, that looks like I'll have to do a little work for it. But, oh, hold it. Maybe that bait fish is a little weak. That's an easy meal. I think I'll take it now, you know, during that pause. Yeah. Yeah, kind of thing, yeah. Let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll dig in more on smallmouth bass. So uh, hang tight, everybody, and we'll be right back. There are not many places in the world where you can fly fish for permit, tarpon, bonefish, and snook, all within a few miles of each other, but you can in Belize. When you fish with Charlie Leslie fly fishing, you're on a private island and are only minutes away from some of the finest fly fishing in Belize. You'll start out from Placencia and take just a 30-minute boat ride to your lodging on the island. Once you're there, you'll be fishing lagoons full of tarpon and targeting permit on the flats of Permit Alley. Bonefish and snook are ready for your cast as well. Charlie Leslie, with over 50 years of experience in the waters of Belize, his son Marlon Leslie and their other hand-picked guides know the waters like no others. Book your next Belize adventure now with Charlie Leslie Fly Fishing. Visit charlielesliefly.fishing.com. Again, that's Charlie Leslie flyfishing.com, or call 303-430-4634. It's 303-430-4634. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We're talking with Jake Billock about smallmouth bass top to bottom. If you'd like to ask Jake a question, go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use the Q&A text box to send us your question. So, Jake, I was asked my guest, hey, what's going on in your fly fishing world? And obviously, your book is the latest, <laughs> the greatest thing that's happening in your world, right? That is correct. That's kind of the all-consuming part right now, aside from running a guide business and trying to stay cool in these summer days. But, yeah, that's pretty much it. The book is kind of taking up a lot of my time, and we were running guided fishing trips for trout and smallmouth right now and don't really get that much of a break and kind of run right into into October with trout and smallmouth and then you know I've got a couple guys including myself that do the Great Lakes Steelhead in both New York and Pennsylvania. We don't get much of a break which is not necessarily a bad thing and I don't really know what it's like to not have a break so that's good but uh, <laughs> uh but yes it's been a pretty phenomenal season this I mean you see a lot of negative publicity with COVID, but I think one thing that COVID did for the outdoor industry is really get people outside. And since 2019, we're, the company's up almost 200%. It's been a, been a blessing for us in some ways. But Yeah, I think that's true uh, across the country from what I've heard talking to folks. But um, 
yeah, yeah. It's one place you can go where you can social distance and stay healthy and enjoy, right? So, well, tell people yeah, you have a, your website. Uh, why don't you give them your website address so that people can find you and look you up? Yeah, for sure. So it's uh, it's just www.relentlessflyfishing.com. I do run some blog posts every now and again. I haven't been doing a great job at that, but on the website, there's all of our different options we have for guided fishing. I will uh, say one thing that's kind of exciting that I completely forgot about until you mentioned the website is that this year I've started partnering with a saltwater captain that will be doing northeast salt and uh, maybe even some stuff down in North Carolina. So relentless fly fishing is getting a little salty, if you will. So we're <laughs> we're kind of we've got some more offerings, which is pretty exciting. The Chesapeake some point in my life I might end up getting back down there to do some guiding where I grew up but you know the guy that I've got working for me does Chesapeake Flats and does some stuff on the Atlantic coast side so that's pretty cool that's a big project right now but that's all there and then also on the website you'll find some YouTube videos and some fly stuff and things like that and then hopefully as the weather gets a little colder and everybody gets cabin fever in the middle of winter I'll be doing some more zoom classes as we go through the winter months doing some stuff on smallmouth, spring creeks, and then also some tying stuff. So keep your eyes out for that stuff as well. Very um, good. That'll be Very good. pretty exciting. Yeah, lots happening there. So it's RelentlessFlyFishing.com, correct? Yep, yep. Okay. All right, that's where you'll find them, folks. Well, good. Let's jump back in here. We did get some questions on the Internet. One Tom Meyer in Wild Rose, Wisconsin. After a rain event and the water is high and stained, what color flies do you recommend? You know, this is a controversial, controversial, contra- whatever that word is, um, <laughs> thing. You know, a lot of people with trout fish streamers go black, dark brown, dark olive for streamers in muddy water. And I believe reading through these questions earlier, I'm going to answer, I'm going to partially answer another question with this one is, but I always go with white. I don't know what it is, but muddy water, clear water, doesn't matter. White is my 100% confidence color. One thing I will say when it comes to higher muddy water is that rattles are definitely a good thing to kind of add in there. I typically, even if I'm fishing white, I've got a select number of flies that I kind of have in the box for that situation. They all have something that makes noise. Smallmouth bass typically hunt with eyesight. So unlike a lot of fish that hunt with lateral lines and vibration, their main sense for hunting is eyesight. And so everything else is kind of second to that. But sound would be another one that they really look at. Blacks and browns definitely work, like dark browns giving you a silhouette. But even in water that I can't see my oar blade in, when I'm rowing, white always seems to produce. Okay. Okay. Good. Good. Phil McCartney asked, he said, please tell us the story behind how the smallmouth shown in the posted photo on our website was caught. What aspects of the story illustrate the methods you typically use to catch such non-typical fish? Sure. That fish was actually caught in cold water, and I believe that was a March fish. So we were out exploring one of our local Summertime, well, I'd say it's more of our springtime fishery. We get a migration of bass that come up into these, into some of our creeks, and they spawn in there. So just like a steelhead run, we will fish the migration of those fish to spawn, and then as soon as they start to spawn, 
we leave them alone. Ironically enough, that fish, I was supposed to be trout fishing that day. Like anything, I am a smallmouth <laughs> magnet, I guess. So in that fish, the water temperature was 42 degrees. It was very cold. And if you kind of can see behind that fish, you know, there's a real deep, slow section of water back there. And we were fishing type 5 sinking lines with medium lead-eyed streamers and just kind of dredging the bottom and going pretty slow, which is probably why I called a smallmouth and not a trout because I was fishing too slow, but very, very slow strips and just waiting for something to grab a hold of it. And when you come to fish in cold water for bass, you got to put it on the bottom, and a lot of times those fish feel like you're getting stuck into a log, but you just got to gamble and pull a little bit harder, and sometimes it starts to swim one way or the other, not just stops. So that fish was taken on a weighted fly with a heavy to medium heavy sinking line and pretty cold water. Okay. Yeah, I can see in the background there the the bushes are just starting to leaf out. So that was early spring then. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I actually just pulled it up on Instagram while we were looking, and I posted that on March 31st. Oh, um, okay. I think we yeah. were out a couple of days before that. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Well, good story. How often do you, in the rivers you fish, is there a lot of crossover between trout and smallmouth as far as where they're holding in the river? There's definitely, you mean just like in the sense of like where you would find a trout, you would also right. find a bass? Yeah. Yes. I would say 90% of it is very trouty. Not necessarily trout in the sense of smaller fish, but we kind of compare or, you know, use a similarity between large big water brown trout and smallmouth. So pretty much anywhere that you would be like, ooh, that looks pretty good. There's probably a big brown trout right there. Most of the time you're going to find, you know, bass in those same areas. The only difference that I see a lot of times is when you find those bass up in shallow water. You don't a lot of times find, unless you're in the middle of a mayfly hatch and you're in a tail out and it's really slow and it's easy for big trout to, to munch on some mayflies, like you're not going to find a lot of trout in super skinny and really exposed water. But when bass are on the hunt, I think sometimes, you know, they don't really care where they are. They just kind of go where they got to go. And we've caught fish and we've caught 17 to 20-inch smallmouth in less than a foot of water before, and it really blows my client's mind when they're like, oh, it's just a little fish, that it starts to pull and comes out of the shadows, and I'm like, no, that's a really big one. They're like, what was he doing in that water? So <laughs> yeah. um, I think 90% of the water that we find smallmouth in would be very similar to what you would find a big predatory trout in. Yeah, 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 good, good. Another question came in here. Tim Meyer from Eau Claire, I probably Wisconsin as well. Can you talk about how you think smallmouth bass are affected by fishing pressure? Absolutely. I actually, the article that I wrote for uh, Fly Fisher Magazine in the June-July issue was trout tactics for smallmouth. And I basically started, did that entire article on low clearwater smallmouth fish and how similar it is to trout fishing. But when it comes to pressured fish, I definitely, they definitely get extremely weary and they get really smart. They're not book smart, I would say. They're more street smart than anything. You know, if they get pricked by something 10 times, they're going to probably figure out, hey, that color, that size, probably not a good idea. And I will say that on one of the rivers that we guide on, 
it's getting more and more pressure, and when the water gets lower, the drift boat guys can only go on so many sections, and so you'll see bass start to spook before you can even get close enough to make a cast. And then when that happens, a lot of times I'll take my raft and I'll put my raft in and I'll float one of those sections where it's kind of a nightmare. You've got to drag your boat sometimes 100 feet over a gravel bar, but you get into that water that hasn't been pressured for a month and those fish are suicidal. When you can see a major difference between like this kind of PhD bass versus this teenage hot rod and they're in the same system, but and five miles apart, you can see a huge difference between a pressured bass and and a non-pressured bass, and they get very, very picky and very finicky. If you don't drop your fly in the exact right spot, if you have a fly that's too heavy when it hits the water or too big once it's in the water, you forget it. You're not even going to look at it. But, you know, you get into these fish that haven't been pressured very much, and you can go bigger, you can go louder, you can go heavier and tip it, but there are times in the summer if it's low and clear that we'll be fishing six-pound tippet on 14-foot leaders just to try to get far enough away from those fish that we're not going to spook them just by getting the fly in the water. Yeah. And so, yeah. yeah. Phil McCartney wrote in on the Internet here and asked, because you're just talking about size of flies and, and so forth. He says, in your experience, do the larger smallmouth seem to want larger flies? No, not at all. I, <laughs> the larger bass tend to actually kind of, again, going into that street smarts thing, they definitely, they don't want, when the water gets low and clear, they don't want anything big. I mean, I, we'll fish size six streamers. Sometimes we'll fish really small dry flies sometimes to get them to eat. Now, these are also extremes. In the springtime, you're talking about unpressured versus pressured. Yeah, those bass want big stuff all spring because they're coming out of the winter time where they're not eating a lot. They're almost in a zombie state, and they're just eating anything and everything that they can. And it's also when bait fish are the predominant food source for bass in the spring, and so you can fish six-inch flies in the springtime, but if you were to throw that same six-inch fly in front of a bass, you know, when it's low, clear water, no matter how big or small it is, he's going to go the other direction really fast. Okay, good to know. Let's take a quick break, and we'll come back. Let's talk about equipment, leaders, and so forth. So uh, hang tight. We'll be right back. Enrico Puglisi flies pride themselves with creating unique and one-of-a-kind flies and fly tying material. Enrico has been experimenting with durable, synthetic, and natural materials to create his flies that catch fish for more than 20 years. His innovative products, including brushes, fibers, and components, have made a major impact on the direction of saltwater fly fishing, and his methods and materials are respected worldwide. Whether you want your flies hand-tied for you or you'd like to tie your own, be sure to visit Enrico Puglisi Flies and browse through their online catalog. Visit epflies.com, that's epflies.com, and do a little shopping today. Okay. Back at it here, Jake. We've got a question. I think it's Dan uh, Leibarger. What is a good weight rod, line, tippet, leader to use for smallmouth? So what is how do you rig up? That's a great question. Try to keep this as short as possible. So typically we use six and eight weight rods. You can also use a seven weight, so six, seven, and eight weight rod. just depends on the season, the size of the fly that you're going to fish, how far you have to cast. I tell people a lot of times a six weight can handle a 20-inch bass. 
but it can't oftentimes handle the cast that you have to make to get to that fish. This time of year in the summer, and we're, we're more fishing some smaller bugs, and you know, we're in that transition between like water's not too low yet where we've got to make 60, 70 foot casts like we're fishing for permit. You can get away with a six weight, but in the springtime when we're throwing bigger flies, we're typically using eight weights for that. And then if we've got a cast pretty far in the summer months, we'll go to eight weights with that. Um, fly line wise, I typically, unless I'm in the dead of winter, but even now I don't use them that often. I don't use like sinking lines like type three, type five, type seven. If I need to get a little deeper, I just change my fly with a little bit heavier weight in the fly. Typically, the only two lines that I use are either floating line or an intermediate line. The floating lines are great, and it, again, it kind of depends on the situation you're in. You know, Scientific Anglers makes a phenomenal bass line, their bass bug line. It's heavy. It's two line weights heavier than kind of the IGFA rating of it or whatever. An eight weight is technically the grain weight of a you know nine and a half, ten weight, depending on what you're looking at. So for throwing frogs, deer hair frogs, you know, bigger poppers, that line works great. But if you have to get into a situation where even the fly line hitting the water needs to be soft, you know, moving into something more like a scientific angler infinity line or just like a Rio Grande, which is a line and a half weight, you know, something that's not quite as as heavy on the water. It might be a little harder to cast. You've really got to pause on your back cast. You can't just flail and use the weight of those fly lines to get out there. You have to really pay attention to what you're doing. But the, just the taper of the fly line can sometimes be the difference between catching that fish and not. So that's that. And then, again, I am on the Scientific Angle Pro Staff. Every line I use is SA, but lots of companies make great fly lines. But I love the SA Clear Sink 30 and their intermediate line, that's really good. Throwing a lot of different stuff, it gets down a little deeper than some of your intermediate lines, and so I think it's a great line that you can use to keep yourself connected if you need to throw something a little heavier, but it also gets those flies a little bit down in the water, but it's not so heavy that it pulls it down. So if you're fishing a swim fly or kind of that mid-column fly, you can pause it and it just hovers there. It doesn't start to fall immediately. So for that, that's what we use. And then leaders, I time my own leaders most of the time. I use hard mono. I'll start at 30 pounds, go down to 12 pounds, and then put a swivel on. I use swivels for everything because no matter what your fishing size and fly-wise, there's always wind resistance, and sometimes you can get some twist in there. And even fishing smaller dry flies, I've never had an issue with that swivel, like pulling that dry fly down. Typically, we've got a lot of foam, deer hair, corks, but if you want to keep it simple, every fly line manufacturer also makes a bass, bass bug leader. Those are great. If you, I typically don't do use anything more than about a 7.5 or 8-foot leader and then add tippet to that. You don't need to have a really long leader for most of it, especially if you're fishing streamers. You don't want a really long one to turn over. But, so if I'm doing a streamer leader, I do pretty simple leader. It's 30 inches of 30 pound, 20 inches of 20, and then 12 or 16 inches of 12 or 16 to a swivel. Not that long. And then if I'm going to fish a dry fly leader, I typically do about 36 to 40 inches of 30 pound. And then I will drop down to 25, 20, and then 16 and 12. So I'll do more of a, a traditional taper for that because I want to get a little bit more distance than that because we are fishing some, some pretty spooky stuff. 
tippet wise. Well, before um, you I go on, uh, okay. Jake, before you go on, when you say swivel, are you talking about putting a swivel between your leader and your tippet, or where is that? Yes. Uh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Like so you would I a tippet ring, only using a swivel there. Yeah. Same thing. Yeah, and I use the yeah. micro swivels. So I use a 25 pound micro swivel, or if I'm fishing streamers, sometimes I'll use a 40 pound. The 25 is small enough that you can not have a drag a fly under, and then 40 pounds is not a bad thing to have if you're throwing some heavy heavy streamers, big streamers, or even some flint streamers like game changers that might take you an hour and a half to tie. You don't want to lose it. I don't want to rely on that swivel to not break. Yeah, and the swivel is to keep the line from fouling? Is from that... fouling, yeah from, yeah, from twisting up. Twisting up, yeah. Okay, okay, go ahead. Talk about um, and then tippet-wise, yeah. tip anywhere from 6 pounds to 20 pounds, we're fishing the springtime, and the water's a little higher, and those fish aren't quite as weary. You can get away with 20 pounds a good amount of time. And um, But then once you get into the summer months, we drop into 12, 8, and 12, 10, 8, and 6 are kind of the, the summertime. And then I would say 12, 16, and 20 would be our spring and fall when we're fishing the bigger streamers. Okay, okay. We've got kind of a long one here from Charles Phelps in Minnesota. He's got some follow-up questions down the road here, too. Let me read through this because I think it's good. A dozen or so friends and I fish from drift boats for smallies throughout the summer on the St. Croix River. One to four of us are on the water about five days a week. We catch an occasional four or five pounder, a lot of two to three pounders, and countless smaller fish. We typically use eight-weight rods with floating lines. We typically fish with poppers, Dahlberg divers, tequilis, murdish, minnows, and game changers. We rarely use bite guard leaders, but are occasionally bitten off by a northern or a muskie. What strength and length of leader and tippet would you use given the above information? Everything from a 5-foot section of 16-pound line to tapered 9-foot, 10-pound leaders have been recommended to me. That's a great question, and I almost answered that when we were talking about the tippet. I read that earlier. We have we don't have a lot of northern pike down here. There are a few sections, random sections, that have them. However, we do bycatch some muskies in the springtime, especially when we're throwing some bigger flies. And I will go out. Well, let me back up. And so we have some muskies, but I've also done the Michigan game with Schultz Outfitters a few times. And they have a lot of northern pike up there as well. And when they go out in these certain sections that have northern pike, a lot of times we kind of go for broke and just go with the largest tippet that we can to still catch bass. And so a lot of times they'll go out, they'll put 20-pound floral on, knowing that, yes, you should have 40, 50, 60-pound or wire to ensure that you won't get bit off. But 20 gives you a pretty good chance of landing some of those pike, especially if you can see them. And so in the springtime, when I go out and I know there's a stop possibility we're going to tangle with a muskie or two, I will run a normal, my normal leader like I have 30, 20, 16, or 12, and then I will just run 20-pound floral off of that. It's kind of a semi-quasi-bite leader. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing that you can do to really stop that bite off from happening. I mean, if, I'm, I've had muskie bite through 60-pound floral and 20-pound wires. If it gets in the right spot, you're toast anyway, but short end of that is I would try to fish, if you can, 20-pound floral. But, if, again, if you're going to fish in those smaller bugs like murdered minnows and 
tequilas and stuff like that, sometimes you might have to drop down just to get it through the eye of the hook. But if you can get away with 20 pound, I would stick with 20 pound as your kind of standard for that. And you're going to weed out some of those smaller fish. You might weed out one or two of those bigger fish that might see that stuff. But it's kind of up to the angler to say, do I want a chance losing that fly to a pike or a muskie and catch more bass or do I want to not catch as many bass? And potentially not lose that hour-long game changer that it, you know. Yeah. That I just <laughs> yeah. Tied, so. Yeah. Uh, he also asked, would your leader length and tippet change when the water is more low, slow, and clear than usual? Yes. Uh, I mentioned that probably a little earlier, but when the water gets low and clear, especially if we're fishing top water, I will go as far as a six or not sixteen, a fourteen-foot leader down to six-pound tippet in that sense. Now, for streamers, you know, I probably wouldn't fish much under about 10 pounds with streamers just because, especially if you're fishing, you know, crayfish or something like that, you're going to have some abrasion on the bottom, and I don't typically, you're going to lose flies. That's just how part of the game, but I try really hard to kind of manage that expectation of, like, do you want to lose a bunch of flies, or do you want to, you know, try to just get that fly down and with that 10 pound tippet um so if i'm fishing streamers i don't drop much under 10 pounds unless i'm fishing a smaller swim fly like a mini murditch or one of my roamers that are kind of swim flies and they're size twos and fours and you're going to fish mid column you can get away with fishing you know eight or six pounds for the most part and what about poppers what do you usually use for poppers right now the past week with pretty high sun we've been fishing six pound fluoro to the poppers i won't go any lighter than that because especially typically the lower the clear the higher the sun the warmer the water is and i don't bass do have an upper limit to heat which i don't know if a lot of people really think about that but 85 is kind of like when a bass's metabolism starts to fall back down and they can overheat and you know, I don't want to go any lower than six pounds because I want that fight to last as short as possible. Sure. Okay, let's talk about flies. Charles Phelps also asked if you would only have one surface fly for smallies and one streamer for smallies, what would they be? That's a good, I was thinking about that for about an hour. <laughs> I would I would say if I had to have one surface fly, I would have a size six boogle bug in solar flare color. I had to have one. That would be my surface fly. And if I had to have one streamer, I would probably have one of my signature flies, the roamer, which is kind of a general bait fish that swims a lot like a rubber fluke or a swim bait. I would probably have those two flies as my main two flies for sure. Okay, okay. What makes your roamer streamer better than other streamers? Well, that's a great question, and I don't know if I have the personality to really explain that, but (laughs) I don't know if I would say it's any better. I'm just extremely proud of that fly. It's the first one that I ever, like, spent about five years really like tweaking it from the original fly to what it is now but i will say one thing that i've heard clients say is that unlike some of these other streamers out there right now that are that are swim flies is the roamer is extremely lightweight so it was designed 
to be extremely light, not only in the air, but also in the water. And so the concept behind it is less is more. That fly will move like a fluke if it's tied properly, dancing side to side. But it will also, because there's virtually no weight in the fly itself, it will also move through the current as the current pulls it. So there's no weight kind of pulling it down. So it kind of dances by itself in a lot of ways. I think the movement of that fly in the water makes it really good. It's also typically only tied on a single hook, so it's not an articulated fly. I do have versions that are articulated, but I think that if that fly is fished properly, it can move better or as good as any other fly that was meant to go crazy under the surface and kind of dodge and duck and all that stuff. Yeah, I noticed in your recipe it uses both natural and synthetic materials, kind of a combination of a bunch of different things. Yes. Yeah, and that's I can see how that gets some natural swimming appeal there. Grizzly Bard and Flashaboo, Crystal Flash, Bucktail. you got a lot of things going on in that fly. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff in there, yeah. The one thing that's kind of cool about that, and I actually was you know, not even really thinking about it, but I was talking to Bob Popovic's at the last Edison fly fishing show, and we were talking about some of his designs, and I showed him some pictures of that, and he actually really loved that fly. And I said, you know, one of the concepts was, like, you look at a, again, when I designed that fly, yeah, the short end of the of the story is that I was fishing for stripers with my dad, and he was killing it on a swim bait, just a pearly white swim bait, and I could not catch a fish to save my life on any of my favorite striper flies. So I went home that day and I tied a horrendous version of what is now the Romer. But the idea was that you look at a soft plastic and there's nothing hanging off of it. There's no flash flailing on the outside of it. It's all internal flash. There are a few pieces of flashaboo that slide over the top to kind of give it that back strap, if you will. But all of the rest of the flash in that fly is internal. I hide some flashaboo behind the feathers and the tail, and then I put UV polar chenille on the inside so it kind of glows through, giving it kind of a three-dimensional appeal. And, and then, you know, the laser dub head, there's flash mixed into that, but it's not kind of all over the place. It's not The fly isn't meant to move while not moving. It's meant to swim side to side and pause and just sit almost like a suspended jerkbait at the same time. So it's kind of, it can do, it can't move as crazy as a Rapala with a lip, but give it the right strip and the pause and that thing will slide side to side. And that confused bait fish appeal really appeals to a lot of different uh-huh. fish. Yeah. Lee in Connecticut and Charles Phelps again in Minnesota, both asked about colors. You had mentioned white was kind of a go-to color for you no matter what. But Lee was asking, do you have any other trigger colors? And Charles was asking about are certain colors you avoid and others that you have confidence in. Again, that's probably trigger colors as well. So can you speak to colors beyond white? (laughs) Yeah, for sure. I would say one thing that's interesting if you look at a crayfish crayfish have orange every single crayfish has some hint of orange on it and so i think a trigger color that i use a lot for smallmouth especially when i'm fishing you know bottom crawling or bottom bouncing flies is orange i always no matter whether it's a sculpin crayfish a leech 
some sort of darter or really anything that's going to bounce on the bottom, I've got orange in it. I think orange to a smallmouth is what chartreuse is to a saltwater fish. It's kind of mm. like that. I wish I could come up with a slogan to like, if it ain't chartreuse, it ain't no use. If it ain't orange, something like that. But So orange is definitely a color that I have in almost every single one of my, my bottom bouncing bugs because I think that's a huge thing. And again, going back to smallmouth having using eyesight as their main hunting sense is that when you can have something just like a trout, like a hot collar on a nymph for a trout, if you can have something that can grab their attention because they pick up UV light better than we do, you know, having something that says, hey, I'm over here is a big thing. Other colors that I really like, other color combinations, anything natural, olive over white, chartreuse over white. I really love like a grayish olive over white. I know, what is it? Crafter makes a color that's like gray olive or something like that. And I think that's one of like the best bait fish back colors that exist. I do also like black and I do like browns and, and stuff like that when it comes to fishing sculpins and things like that i try to keep it as as natural as possible when we're fishing especially in the summertime i try to stay away from really flashy stuff you know i don't actually fish a lot of chartreuse in the summertime it's more of a springtime and a fall time thing when you're trying to get that fish to really get mad it's like this bright light flashing in front of its face he's like get out of my head so he's going to eat it but i don't fish a lot of like fire tiger combinations in the summertime so anything that's really, really bright and flashy, I stay away. I would say white is probably the brightest thing that I will fish. But I do really like olive over white in the summertime and gray over white in the summertime. Okay. I noticed in your topwater fly section in your book, most of the flies are designed to push water, popper style, on the surface. But you also have a few others in there, including... White fly, hex adult, some stimulators, which is you know, stonefly kind of imitation, poppers, and so forth. When do you go from a popper to, to one of these others? Is it during a hatch? Are you trying to match the hatch in, in some of these situations? Yes. Most of the – one of our systems that we fish a lot is, like mentioned before, is extremely, extremely healthy, and so it gets just about every single mayfly – aside from a green drake it also gets golden stones and the big black stone that we have that is the cousin of the salmon fly and there are plenty of times where those fish are up damsel flies are another one that they're pretty common you know in the sense of a hatch for smallmouth you know you can see bass jumping out of the water for those things and i would say honestly i switch from frogs and poppers to you know more of that kind of natural type of silhouette or even size because we get into those pickier fish and those flies that we're throwing in the earlier season when the water's up, you know, they make a pretty big splat. And so we switch over to the smaller stuff once the water gets a lot lower, a lot clearer, and uh, we need something that still has a nice profile that's big enough for those fish to want to eat it, but also not too big, you know, when it comes to actually hitting the water. The guys out at Tight Lines in Wisconsin came up with a fly called the Old Mr. Wiggly, which is a foam graft hoppery looking thing. And that is one of my, I was kind of tossed up between saying, you know, if I had one surface fly, would it be, you know, the Boogle Bug or the Old Mr. Wiggly? Because those are my two 
two confidence flies, and, and I fish the Wigglies a lot this time of year when the water's low and clear. And you don't pop them. You just kind of pull them, and they just create a little bit of wake. It's not too intrusive, and then it sits there, and you get fish to come up and grab them. And then another thing that I'm going to kind of piggyback off that question is color of popper can also be a big difference. And I've noticed this a few times in the summertime when you've got these fish that are coming up and looking at your popper, looking at your kind of olive or tan bug and not eating it every time. You know, sometimes they will, sometimes they'll follow it for 20 feet and then eat it like a trout. And then I'll notice those fish are, they don't have to eat a lot of the food that hits the water. Cicada, for instance, when the cicada hits the water, it's really hard for that bug to get off the water. So a bass knows that he's got all the time in the world to eat that thing because it's not going anywhere. But a damselfly or a dragonfly being red, blue, olive, black, green, those things never actually hit the water. They'll ride on debris like clumps of grass and stuff, but damselflies never actually touch the water like a mayfly. When a bass is feeding on a bug like that, they have to commit pretty quick to eat that bug, otherwise it's gone. And so I've noticed that if you have some picky fish, but you've got those damselflies and dragonflies around, if you switch to one of those colors, like an olive or a bright blue, you can get a quicker and more aggressive response because they're like, oh, no, I want to eat that. It's not going to be here in five seconds, so I've got to commit right now. I can't look at it. You'll see a difference in color change as you start to see the bugs change as well. I notice you have uh, some mouse patterns in there too, the small mouth like the mice as well. Oh, my gosh, yeah. I don't know what it is about a mouse, but it drives smallmouth nuts. You know, I'm, you fish these deer hair frogs, and you get some pretty, like, savage eats with those. But I have a picture from about 10 years ago. In the middle of the day in July, we were decided we were going to fish mice and see what happens. And we were catching all sizes of fish from 6 inches to 18 inches on these mice. But I have a picture of a 6-inch smallmouth with about a 3-inch mouse in its mouth. And it's just, it's the most insane thing that you'll see. They just lose their mind. Like, all caution goes to the wind, and they just go nuts over them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we've been, uh, a friend of mine, uh, also a guest on my show, Richard Palatsky, has a mouse pattern. He ties out of baccarat foam. And yeah, he's been catching every kind of fish in the world on that mouse. <laughs> I swear. Yeah, they, you know, wherever he goes, the fish like mice, it seems like, yeah. Yeah, cool. Uh, there was a question about weed guards here. How, Alan in New York, how often are important are weed guards on the water you fish? Assuming the answer is important, then what style do you like for each fly type? So I actually cut every weed guard off. If I buy the Umco Swimming Frog, they come with a weed guard on them. I'm really good friends with Pat Cohen. He does the most amazing deer here stuff ever he always puts weed guards on i cut them off <laughs> we have grass but we don't have like lily pads and mats and stuff like that and so if you're in a situation where you are going to be fishing over some pretty heavy like lily pad type of stuff i think weed guards are really important and my favorite type of weed guard is actually when you tie it off the bend of the hook and then reattach it to the eye like that full loop of it 
I think that's my favorite. I have messed around a few times with crayfish and putting weed guards on them and doing that kind of loop over the top just so that they don't get stuck in rocks as much. But I would say, yeah, there's not a single fly in my box that has a weed guard on it. But if I had to, it would be the kind of full wraparound weed guard. Yeah, yeah. I just happened to turn the page in your book to mid-column flies here, and I see this smallmouth with the tail hanging out. <laughs> yeah. I thought only pike did that, but uh, oh, no. smallmouth are greedy and gluttonous as well. Yeah, I, um, I can't tell you how many times a day we catch a bass on a popper or really any fly, and there's a crayfish claw hanging out of its mouth, or as you're fighting it, it five or six little bait fish get you know, spit back up. I mean, they're they're <laughs> definitely a gluttonous critter for sure. Yeah. Alan Coop in New Jersey says, I'm just starting to get into fly fishing for warm water species, and so far I've only caught one smallmouth on a small streamer by accident while fishing for brown trout. Sound familiar, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> it was a great bite, and I want to start targeting them. Would you recommend large streamers like I would be throwing for pike and largemouth or smaller sizes? This gets back to the larger small question, I guess, again. Yeah, I mean, you can. You, I feel like with smallmouth, you can actually never go too small, but you can definitely go too big. I would err on the smaller side, and some of it all, like I've said before, it's, it all depends on the level of the water, the clarity of the water. If you're just getting into it, I would err on some of the smaller stuff. I mean, some of my favorite patterns, like I said, are the Romer. Unfortunately, right now it's not available for purchase unless I tie it, and I'm not tying them. That's a hard get, one to get. get but your hopefully, book. Get your book and learn how, right? <laughs> yeah. Hopefully in the near future it will be picked up by a specific fly manufacturer. We don't want to get into that, though. But the mini Murnich minnow, woolly buggers are actually really great. Clouser minnows are a staple in everybody's – it should be a staple in everybody's smallmouth box. You know, they're – you can get them pretty small, down from a size 8 all the way up to a size 2. But, yeah, I mean, I would say if you're getting into it, grab a couple bugs that look like crayfish and grab a couple bugs that look like baitfish and a couple poppers and start off small. You don't have to go – go super crazy and you know if you're fishing smaller rivers assuming that that river or creek that you were on with the uh the trout might not have been that big so you know if you don't have a six seven or eight weight and you just have a five weight you could probably still do fine with a five weight with some smaller streamers there were uh, several questions really on crayfish patterns and fishing them charles phelps asked what's your favorite crayfish pattern Gordon asked, where in the water column can you fish crayfish? And Charles also asked about fishing crayfish around rocky areas, grassy banks, wood structure. So talk about where you fish your crayfish and how you fish them and, and the patterns you like. Sure, yeah. Talk about some patterns real quick. So I obviously, like well, I guess I wouldn't say obviously, but I have a few of my own patterns that aren't really published anywhere yet unless you follow me on instagram the last crayfish pattern i just put up is my pride and joy that one's that one's been through the ringer a few times a couple dozen design changes with that one but i love blank chocolates changer craw that's one of my higher water bugs i mean it's hard to tie smaller ones the one that i just started tying a few weeks ago is a double articulated version of one that i've been tying since basically last winter 
that was tying it single articulated with rabbit on the top and all that stuff. But found a couple ways to, to make it a little bit different than most of the crayfish patterns I've seen. And I like the hinge in it with two with two articulations in it because it gives it a little bit more of that tail swimming approach to it. But plain chocolates, change your craw, a couple of my patterns that I have that aren't really published or anything like that. And then another one that I would say is probably was my number one fly was the fly fish food El Crossito. Those guys nailed that pattern. It's it's an awesome fly. I also really like Chuck Craft's Claw Dad. That thing's relatively easy to tie, very indestructible, gets down deep and quick. That flies awesome. And some of the kind of staples from back in the day, the Clouser crayfish, which is not actually meant to be fished on the bottom. It's supposed to be, there's a couple different ways you can do it, but under an indicator, dead drifting. The near enough crayfish is also another great one that I like. The tequila, that one is an awesome bug. I don't have that many of them right now, but just a, lots of rubber legs, bass-like rubber legs. And then talking about the columns that you can fish crayfish, anywhere, any column except for the top, so bottom and middle. Crayfish do swim, and they swim really quick. You can definitely fish them moving pretty quick and stripping them just like you would a bait fish. But, you know, I think that, again, smallmouth being efficient hunters and having a lot of other food options, the faster you move a crayfish, the fewer fish you're going to catch, and probably the smaller fish you're going to catch. You know, big bass definitely don't like to move. When I first started guiding for smallmouth, I was on the Schuylkill River here in Pennsylvania, and I took a trout approach to everything on that river, and we were catching a lot of little fish, and we could see big fish, but they wouldn't, you know, we couldn't get them to eat any the way we were fishing, and it wasn't until I slowed everything way down and started bottom bouncing and, you know, just kind of crawling stuff on the bottom. We started catching bigger fish on the regular. And the slower you can move a crayfish, the better, I think. Fishing them on the bottom is definitely the most productive way that I've fished for them. But I have caught plenty of fish swinging them through ripples at Mach 7. They do eat, really? them. They yeah. do eat them moving pretty fast, yeah. And so then, that, that would uh, this simulate more of a, a dislodged crawfish that's loose in the current kind of thing? Yeah, just kind of tumbling around. And I will say yeah. that when you swing them, a lot of times when I swing a crayfish in a riffle, I will cast kind of straight out at a 3 o'clock or 9 o'clock off the boat, put one nice mend in it, and then kind of strip it a little bit to kind of pick up so that mend drops the crayfish down so it's not immediately swinging, so it gives it a little bit of a fall, and then I strip it, some of that line in to get it tight. And then as I swing it, you always have to remember that because the crayfish is heavy, it's always behind your lines. By the time your line is straight below you, that crayfish is still probably four or five, six feet behind it, catching up to it. And a lot of times we get those fish to eat when our line is straight and that crayfish is starting to swing up, so it's kind of bouncing along the bottom, and then it starts to lift up in the current, and that's when they get it as soon as it looks like it's about to get away. So you get them right on the end of your swing a lot of times. But Just like with swinging trout flies, <laughs> only a crayfish. Exactly. I never thought of a crayfish fishing it that way, but that triggers them, right? Yeah, that action. Yeah, it, do, it does, yeah. that getting away. And then another one that I saw here was that you mentioned was the uh, the grassy banks and wooded yeah. and anywhere else you yeah. see them. Yes, crayfish obviously love wood. They love structure. They love rocks and drop-offs and things like that. But 
they also are in extremely skinny water. We have some flats on our rivers that are four, five, six hundred yards long, and they're between two feet and six inches, and there's nothing there structure-wise except for you know, maybe a down tree here or a grass mat, but it's all that small gravel mixed with a couple rocks, and we fish that really skinny water with crayfish a lot, and we catch some really big fish doing that. And I think structure, rocks, logs, I think that stuff is definitely a go-to for sure, but don't be afraid to fish that in a flat that you you know, that might only be two feet deep and you can't see the fish necessarily because they are extremely camouflaged. But we catch a lot of fish in water that has virtually no structure, but maybe a couple spots for fish to hold and move around. But like I mentioned before earlier, those fish will also get up on those flats and look for carp and they'll sit behind a carp and they'll eat the stuff that a carp misses rummaging through the rocks. And you can also kind of find fish that way. But we definitely have had some phenomenal days fishing them in virtually structureless water. And when you're working them across the bottom, are you are you walking them as if the, the crayfish is walking as opposed to swimming where, you know, they flash their tail and they move a few feet? Or do you combine those motions? when you're fishing? Probably combining them, I would say. You know, thinking back to, like, the last couple of days that we kind of switched back and forth between crayfish and poppers, is that it's kind of a combination. I mean, I like to go as slow as possible. Like you said, you know, I think the bigger fish are not going to chase it. So if you can keep that crayfish out of the rocks, moving it just fast enough to not get it stuck in the rocks, but you know, slow enough to have that big weary bass come over and look at it and then commit to it. So if I'm, for instance, if we're fishing, if we're fishing while we're floating, I just tell everybody just to go super slow with those strips. Just feel that thing bouncing on the bottom. Give it a couple aggressive pulls every once in a while to kind of hop it up, but just let that thing kind of meander through the rocks like it doesn't realize it's about to get pounded by a smallmouth. But if we're sitting on an anchor, a lot of times what I'll do is I'll tell everybody to cast out at a, either 45 downstream or you know maybe a 20 degrees downstream, just enough to keep your line tight. But instead of actually stripping it, throw a tiny little mend in it each time. So the current is pulling that fly across the bottom, but every time you mend it, you get a little bit of a pause or a hop. And so that kind of keeps it slowing down. You don't want to mend it like you're trying to mend 40 feet of line. You're only just a little wrist, let, wrist twitch to slow that drift down. And that's where you get all of your motion from is that little mend as you go down. And then once you get to the end where it's fully tight, you can just swing it out. And most likely you're going to get a smaller fish when it's moving really fast. But that kind of swing slash mend technique works really well to slow those things down and keep them out of the rocks. Yeah. Well, that's really good good information, good tips there. We're running out of time here, Jake, but I want to finish up with one more question off the Internet here from Tim Meyer because we didn't really talk about this. But he says, most rivers when I fish are dark stained, but on most bright cloudless days, the bigger bass seem to get in a very bad mood unless you find a shady spot or sun gets low enough to provide one bank with shade. Some days, however, they just seem to feed despite the sun. Can you discuss time of day as it relates to smallmouth feeding? Smallmouth bass will feed 
the entire time, it's the entire day. I have tried to test every theory there was about light and angles and shade. 105 degree day with the sun beating down at 2 o'clock in the afternoon and I've got fish rising in the middle of the river in, in a foot and a half of water to damselflies and stuff. And so, <laughs> you know, I think the one thing I will say is I have noticed that, again, because bass hunt with mainly their eyes and they can't adjust really quickly, that if you have a day that starts out cloudy and turns sunny, you'll get a, a lull in that transition. It might be an hour, it might be two hours where, like, when that sun pops out, you're toast. But if you start the day with sun and you end the day with sun, I don't see any difference because their eyesight stays pretty regulated throughout the day. Another thing I have noticed sometimes is when you have that patchy cloud where you might have 40 minutes of sun and then 10 minutes of cloudiness and 20 minutes of sun and 30 minutes of cloudiness, that change sometimes can turn them off. But I think a lot of it is that changing light where if you if those fish have to start to adjust their eyesight, they're going to slow down on their feeding. But if they don't have to adjust their, their eyes, they're going to just keep feeding all day long. Mm. And there is definitely a thing with light angles. I mean, I think that if you have super low light, you won't necessarily see that many fish up where the sun's hitting right on the water. So they might be on the slightly shaded bank or at least where the sun's kind of coming over the water and hitting one side. doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be hugged to the bank on the other side. It just means that maybe three-quarters of the way across the river is where you're going to get, you're going to get good fishing. The other thing I will say, and, and I think that tannic water is, can be a part of this as well, but if you have cloudy water post-rain or falling water, and you have cloudy water in a cloudy day, I think bass can see way better than if you have cloudy water in a high sun day. I think it picks up those particles, and those bass have a harder time seeing through all the stuff that's floating in the water. I do think sun can play a role in, in 20% of the bass's feeding, but I think a lot of it is, is just, if they have to adjust their eyesight, that's when they, they have a problem. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I've never had you know, all the trout shows we've had on the show and stuff, never talked about that kind of thing of eyesight. And what you just said is really kind of interesting. And when you said sunny days, cloudy water, because I can just see that, you know, the, the light bouncing in there, reflect, you get reflections, you get... It's shining off of things, and it could probably be very confusing for the fish, not knowing what's what. So, yeah, yeah, very good tips. Good. Well, time to wrap things up, Jake. We've got plenty more questions to go, but, uh, but out of time. So, uh, But uh, when we return here, we're going to give away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Time Journal and a copy of your book, Smallmouth Bass Flies Top to Bottom, courtesy of Stackpole Books. So stay with us a few more minutes, and you may win one of these great prizes. Reeling and Healing Midwest is a nonprofit organization that champions fly fishing retreats for women surviving and battling all types of cancer. Their mission is to introduce women to the healing powers of the sport of fly fishing and provide a one-of-a-kind experience on and off the water. This is accomplished through the elements of fly fishing, positive camaraderie, peer coaching, a nurture and support network, which in turn renews the spirit and hope of each participant. 
Reeling and Healing Midwest is in need of trout flies, waders, leaders, fishing equipment, and other items. To view their current wish list and to learn how you can support their retreats, visit fishon.org. Again, that's fishon.org, or call them at 616-855-4017. That's 616-855-4017. Just a quick reminder to everyone, before you leave our website tonight, please take a minute and give us your feedback about the show. You can find a link on our homepage in the section under tonight's show that says, What did you think of the show? Just click on that link and leave your comments. We'd really appreciate it. So now we're going to give away a few prizes, and the winners of the drawings are randomly selected from our show's registration database. If you didn't register for the, tonight's show, too late now, but uh, make sure you do so for the next show so you don't miss out on a chance to win some of these great prizes. If you are the lucky winner, we'll contact you after the show to provide you with information on how to receive your prize. So the first thing up is uh, the membership to Fly Fishers International. And to learn more about that organization, go to flyfishersinternational.org, flyfishersinternational.org. They support fly fishing in warm water, cold water, salt water, and around the world. So a good organization to support and they also do a lot in with conservation as well. So let me fire up my database, and here we go. And it looks like the winner of that is Michael Zelznick uh, in Ohio. Michael Zelznick. So congratulations, Michael. I'm sure you'll enjoy your membership. And then we're going to give away a one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal, which you can learn more about at amatobooks.com. And uh, they also publish many books on fly fishing, so check them out. And our winner for that is uh, Gil Rilon, Gil Rilon in California. So congratulations, Gil. And I'm sure you'll enjoy that subscription as well. So now we will give away a copy of Jake's book, uh, Smallmouth Bass Flies Top to Bottom, courtesy of Stackpole Books. And if you'd like to see it, we do have a, a picture on our homepage where you're at right now on the website. Just to the right there, you'll see Jake's book, so you can check it out there if you like. Let's see here. The way you play this is, um, if you haven't done this before, is there's that form on the homepage where you could ask questions during the form. You just put in your answer and your name and your location and submit it there. So the question is, Jake was talking about streamer patterns, and he said there were two colors he liked over white. Uh, name those two colors that he liked over white that uh, uh, I think he said he was fishing this time of year. Did I get that right, Jake? You did, yes. Okay, okay. So um, tell me what those two colors are, folks, and you'll win a copy of Jake's book. So, Jake, it takes a minute, not a minute, just a few seconds delay before they actually hear me. And then they've got to type, and, uh, and then they've got to get the right answer. So I'm going through the here, queue here looking for it now. And it looks like we have uh, Tom Meyer, who is very active asking questions tonight, wrote in and said, gray and olive. So Tom got it right? He got it right. That is correct. All right, all right, Tom. So congratulations. Tom, use that same box and send me over your address, your shipping address that I'll pass on to Stackpole, and then they'll send you a copy of Jake's book. Thanks for paying attention. Thanks for taking notes. And, Jake, thank you so much. Really appreciate you being on the show. I know it's getting late out on the East Coast. 
but uh, at least you took a rest from fishing today. <laughs> so, but thanks, thanks for all your experiences and your knowledge. Yeah, you got it. Thank you. Yeah, well, have a great year, and hopefully we'll see you at one of the shows out, out west here. Everyone, hopefully you've all found our podcast archive on our website. If you haven't, just look for the link in the top-line menu. Uh, the archive, you'll find all our past shows, over 330-some shows now, which you can search by a keyword or keyword phrase like trout or smallmouth. So go ahead and explore. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised at all that you discover there. Our next broadcast will be on September 8th, 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. And on that show, I'm going to interview Paul Weimer, and our topic for the show will be dry fly strategies. Paul is a professional guide and fly tire, and he understands fishing with a dry fly is the essence of fly fishing. Of course, fish feed primarily into the water, but when they rise, there's nothing more exciting. Uh, Paul has fished highly technical waters like Penn's Creek in Pennsylvania, Upper Delaware River in New York, and Spring Creeks in Paradise Valley, Montana. So listen in as Paul breaks down the best methods, rigs, and fly patterns to catch more fish with dry flies. I'd like to thank Fly Fishers International, Motto Books, Least Ferry Anglers, Charlie Leslie Fly Fishing, and Enrico Puglisi Flies for sponsoring our show tonight. Don't forget to visit our website at askaboutflyfishing.com and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing. Well